this is a special day. And the reason it's special is that Mark and Esther come in repentance of sin in their past and ask us to stand with them as they go to the Lord and ask his blessing on their lives. And if you know your Bibles, you know that the Bible tells us that there's no party in heaven when a Ph.D. gets his, uh, what do they call that thing? Hood. When they're hooded. You know, they got these real fancy colors and cloth and all this stuff. And there's no party in heaven when a Ph.D. gets the doctoral hood. And there's no party in heaven when I moved into my new house. And there's no party in heaven when this church got more than 300 people on a Sunday morning. There's no party whenever we do the things that the world thinks matter. What the Bible tells us is that when one, not ten, not a hundred, when one sinner repents and comes home, that all, all heaven rejoices. And so we have had several parties at this church. One I'm not free to tell you about at this point, but this last week we got a letter from a man who had been under the discipline of this church. And you know how when you apologize to your wife, you say, honey, I, and I ask you to forgive me. But. There wasn't a but in the letter. It was, it was, it was, it was just joy. This is beautiful. Yeah, it was just absolutely wonderful. And so, um, what I would like to do this morning is talk a few minutes about uh, what Jesus says. And I think of all the things Jesus said, this is probably my favorite thing. And it's where in Matthew, he says, come to me, and I'm going to quote it from the King James. Uh, you have the New American Standard up there. But he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart and you shall find rest for your souls. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. What that means is that this is true for you. Now, why would you be weary and worn down and drained and heavy laden? Well, not because you're Bob and you're in the hospital room trying to get off the ventilator. If you've been visiting Bob and you've watched him during the hours where he was off the ventilator, what you would have seen is he was partly reclined, and every breath he took he had to fight for. And so you'd sit there watching him, and you'd wish that you could, like, instead of having him back, you could have him on his stomach, but without bearing it, so that he wouldn't have to lift his chest. That's how much you're aware of him fighting for breath. You're aware of every time he lifts his chest to take air in, and you realize that it's killing him. And that's not what Jesus says to come and to bring to him. Bob is weary and heavy laden, and it's his breath That's what's causing him such difficulty. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not the adultery that your husband committed on you. 
and that it causes you such pain and sadness and bitterness. That's not what Jesus says to bring. It's not chronic hepatitis C. It's not lacking a job. It's not being uh, removed from a a doctoral program. It's not um, being... uh, alienated because of your job or your race or your language. That's not what Jesus meant when he said you're weary and heavy laden. What Jesus was referring to was your sin. The burden that you and I have is our sin. That's the burden that we have. Not our wife's sin. Yeah, that's a burden. Not our husband's sin, not our children's sin. The burden that we have is our sin. That's our burden. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, if you know people, you talk to them, you listen. Most of you uh, do listen. Some of us have trouble listening. But if you actually listen to people, you will find that people suffer with their sin. Pagans suffer. Liberals suffer. Unbelievers suffer. Hindus suffer. I was talking to a woman yesterday, and uh, (laughs) I was over in Cincinnati speaking at a graduation of a school, And afterwards, this well-put-together lady came up to me and told me about um, having been... She described to me that there was a way I could know whether people go to uh, nail... What do you call them? Salon. Nail salons. And, and, And she held up her nails, and she said, if people have white at the end of their nails, they didn't just get that way. And I thought, well, I have white at the end of my nails. (laughs) But apparently, she went to a nail salon. And she said that she went in the nail salon and she was talking to a woman and that was serving her, ministering to her. And she said to her, are you a Christian? And the woman was Vietnamese and she said, no. And, well, what are you? She said, well, I'm Buddhist. And so this woman said to her, so what do you do about your sin? And the lady said, well, we all make mistakes. And I thought, well, that's pretty ecumenical. That works as well as in a PCA church as it does for the Buddhists. Have you noticed how nobody speaks of sin anymore? What they talk about is making bad choices. Have you heard that? You know, I don't mind making bad choices. You know, Mary Lee made a bad choice when she married me. (laughs) But it's not a sin. It caused my children to have sin. That's part of the badness of her choice. Making bad choices. Do you know something? If the depth of your awareness of your sin is that you will admit to making bad choices, you don't know Jesus Christ. You do not know Jesus Christ. And the cross means nothing to you. Jesus says, you who are weary and heavy, heavy laden, worn down. And sin does do that to us. 
it does wear us down. When we look through eyes that see at who we are, and you say, well, how do I know if I have eyes that see? And I would say, well, the way you know that you have eyes to see is whether you know the character of God. If you know the character of God, then maybe your eyes see. You know that God is holy. You know that with him there's no lying. He never, ever twists the truth. And I could go on and open up to you the Ten Commandments we sang earlier. If you know the character of God, then it's possible you have open eyes. And you begin to see the ways that you violate the character of God. You begin to see that you don't respect your mother and your father. That you're always making excuses for your disobedience and and you never take seriously your sin. You see that you don't care about your elderly father, your elderly mother, and you're quite happy you don't have an extra room so that you have to take them in. And then you hear God say through his son, That the person that declares their money and their time devoted to the church and doesn't care for their elderly parents has violated the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And so if our eyes are open, we begin to see that every single one of the Ten Commandments, that we violate them all the time. We become sensitive to movies where they say, Jesus Christ, or God. God. And then we become sensitive when people say, gee whiz, because we realize it's a minced oath. The gee whiz is Jesus Christ. It's just pagans trying to clean up their language a little bit so it's not offensive to Christians. And all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're saying, well, I I didn't realize that. Remember, I said, as we become able to see who we really are, Jesus says, you who are weary and heavy laden. We see our rebellion against our parents. We see that we don't care for them in their old age. We see that our eyes are constantly roaming and looking at flesh that God did not give us. We see that we want our neighbor's wife. We want his car. We want his house. We want his job. We see that we wish that we were better at basketball and better at soccer, that we envy our neighbors. We see that we resent when we're disciplined. We resent anybody telling us what to do at work. Authority is obnoxious. And and all of a sudden, as we begin to have our hearts open by God, as he begins to show us who we are, then we think, oh no, this can't be right. Life is supposed to be good. And so we find ways to drug it. A little bit of openness of our conscience, a little bit of eyes that see, a little bit of hearts that begin to be tender. And we say to ourselves, oh no, life is good. I can't have a life where I'm sensitive to my sin because it makes life bad. And so then what do we do? Well, then we start drinking. We turn into a stoner. We start looking at pornography. We medicate ourselves. Or maybe we use legal drugs. We get on antidepressants. We take trips. But sometimes that doesn't work. 
And so then sometimes what we have to do is we have to find a church where we can go to and be religious and never have our consciences awakened. So we find a good reformed church that just says grace, 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 grace. And we sit in the pew and I love grace. And then somebody looks at us and says, why do you need grace? And you say, well, I make bad choices. And, and somebody says to us, well, like, what choice? And we go, well, you know, just general bad choices. Well, like, could you name one from now? Well, you know, we all make bad choices. And aren't you glad that God is graceful? In other words, one of the ways to medicate yourself is to be religious. Many of you are religious, but you have not come to Jesus. Because you can't bear to look at who you are. And so you won't come to him. Because if you came to him, you would have to come weeping. It's the only way to come to him. And so many of you have spent your life growing progressively One time I sinned by getting a car, and it was a pretty serious sin. I, I had a great deal on a Lexus, LS400, and I was buying it from a Christian, so what could be wrong with it, right? So I drove down to Evansville, bought it, and it had a great sound system. So... Having a new status in life, I hope you don't have a Lexus. <laughs> this is my fault, not yours. I won't judge your car. But anyhow, having a new status in life, I turned on the tunes. And you know what came on? This was my first clue that this was not God's provision, but a sin. What came on was Pink Floyd comfortably numb. <laughs> and let me tell you, before that car was gone, I vomited it out my nose. I told the congregation that it was sin. You know why? Because... A man that wants to drive a Lexus LS400 and he's a minister of the gospel doesn't exactly resemble Jesus or John the Baptist. I mean, there's just this little problem. And that's such a beautiful picture of how we escape coming to Jesus. What we do is we get an LS400 and then we look at pornography and we have a nice house and everything's meticulous about our house, of course, because we want to give the message to people that our life is ordered well, <laughs> you know. So our house goes Dutch. Some of you Dutch, you know what Dutch houses look like. They're perfectly reformed, <laughs> right? Any of you been to Dutch communities? Everything's clean, everything. And we can remember being under the preaching of the word. 
We can remember having the Holy Spirit speak to us about our sin. We can remember how painful it was. We can remember thinking, that's a bottomless hole. Once I start down that hole, there's no coming back and there's no hope. And so what we do is we go to church and we have a clean home. Our grass is well kept. Our wife dyes her hair. We have an LS400. We look at pornography. And just like the Buddhist, the most we'll plead guilty to is bad choices. Ecumenical, right? Ecumenical. There's no difference. It's a state of mind, right? And Jesus says what? Jesus says, come to me, you who are what? Weary and heavy laden. Do you know that Jesus said that it would be good that he would leave? And that's one of the most wacky statements of the Gospels to me, that Jesus would ever say it's good for him to leave. But if you read on why it's good for him to leave, what you'll find is that he says it's good for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit will come. And then he says this is what the Holy Spirit will do. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's good that I leave so that the Holy Spirit can come and convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's like, okay, how many of you want it, huh? Now, again, isn't it true that the reason the reason we're religious is so we don't have to be convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment? I mean, isn't that the purpose of grace? To keep us from ever being convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. The reason that we're religious is so we don't have to feel like we are sinners. Grace covers it all, and we don't have to hear about it. But Jesus said to the religious people, to the religious people, he said, it's good that I leave because then the Holy Spirit will come, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, the person who is hopeless is the person who feels no need to come to Jesus who has no awareness of being weary and heavy laden. That's the person that's hopeless. Comfortably numb. And so what are you? Are you gloriously alive or are you comfortably numb? You don't know it by how many tomato plants you plant. That's just, you're an idiot. We plant, I, I planted 46. That doesn't indicate that you're alive. What indicates that you're alive is that when we sing of God's mercy, your face, your countenance is joyful. You know? You cultivate an awareness of your sin. You embrace the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. And what is the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life? It is. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. If, if, if you don't like the Holy Spirit's ministry, it's because the grace of Christ isn't precious to you. You may talk about grace on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But if you can't abide the ministry of the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin and righteousness and judgment, you care nothing about grace. You're just a Buddhist. You're just, 
making bad choices and there's no gravitas to your life. You'll be like the guy that died and I went to his funeral. I wasn't presiding over it. And I sat there and listened to all the older people in front of me talk, to, talk about how much they'd won or lost at the casino earlier that week. Burying one of their friends. Absolutely no gravitas, no weight, no glory, no dignity, no reality to their lives. Many of you, the only reality to your lives are the tunes you listen to and the movies that you watch on Facebook. And let me clue you in, Facebook has no reality. This last week, one of my relatives was sending out a warning to everybody in our family about the upcoming family reunion. We happened to be at a place on the lower end of Michigan, on Lake Michigan, where there are tremendous riptides. A couple summers ago, I don't remember how many people died just in that little area. Do you remember? A number of them. And, and many of us have almost drowned there. <laughs> and uh, so he sent out this thing, and I had never... I've lived my life around the water, but I never realized this thing was a description of what it is to drown. I think it's a perfect analogy to those who will not come to Jesus. All right? The drowning child never, ever lifts his hands like in the movies and waves them. The drowning child never, ever cries out. Something like a quarter of all children that drown, drown within 25 feet of their parents, and often their parents are watching them as they drown. It's such a perfect description of people on the highway to hell in this life. You look at them, and they're well put. They're Dutch. They're clean. Their life is orderly. They have insurance. When they get stopped by the police, it's only because their back plate is expired. You know, there's absolutely nothing about them that indicates, help, help, you know. They've long ago silenced that part of the universe because, after all, life is supposed to be good. And it can't be good if I'm looking into a chasm and I realize that it's a bottomless pit and I'll fall forever and I can't cope with my sin. And so we make bad choices, just like the Buddhists. Just bad choices, you know? And we go to church and they talk about grace and we don't come to Jesus. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is anathema to us. The Pentecostals do that. We can't have this convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Why? How could you bear it? Jesus says, come to me. Well... I came to Jesus. I prayed the sinner's prayer back in vacation Bible school, and that's enough of that. Jesus says, you who are weary and heavy laden. He says, come. You say, well, Tim, listen, you don't know me. It's been 40 years with my bitterness and it's become a way of life for me. You know how the, the woman that's always complaining about her husband drinking, you know, he ever goes dry, she divorces him. <laughs> it's worked well to complain about him her whole life, but if he ever goes dry, she divorces him because she is more in love with the sickness and sin than she is with health. And she's learned to define herself by complaining about her husband drinking. 
And that's the way we are. Tim, I've spent 30, 40 years being bitter. I've spent 30, 40 years drinking, smoking dope. I spent 30, 40 years loving money. I have so much money you have no idea. And the rich young ruler turned away. And Jesus was very sad because he loved him. And Jesus said, what? He said, come to me. Come to me. Come. You say, well, <laughs> you know, I thought you were reformed. They say, yeah, I am. Well, you know, you reform guys. I mean, what if I'm not among the elect? And I say, what? And you say, well, what if I'm not among the elect? How can I come? I said, well, Jesus says, come. You say, yeah, but he also says that you didn't choose me, I chose you. And it says that no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. So how can God judge me for not doing what he hasn't helped me to do? Now, here's an interesting thing. Could you flip up? Did you know that this is what's directly before what Jesus says, come to me? This is what's directly before. Now look at it. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. What's the goal of the miracles? Is it for everybody to have a good life? No, it's that they'll repent. He did all these miracles and the people in the cities where he did the miracles didn't repent. So Jesus denounced them. He said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And you say, oh, I can't do that. I don't do sackcloth and ashes. Okay, fine, Jesus says. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you not? will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, a word for hell. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, you know what happened in Sodom, right? Right? Burned to a crisp, fried by God. If the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. God would not have consumed it. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the day of Sodom and the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. So here he has all these cities, all these people who will not repent. They will not repent. Like many of you, you won't repent. You won't repent. And Jesus says to them, you're going to meet a judgment that makes Tyre and Sidon and Sodom look tame. So here's the reality. He's done his miracles. They've refused to repent. He pronounces God's judgment. And then what does he do? Well, then he says, now, here's the reason they are the way they are. Here's the reason they won't repent. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. <laughs> in other words, you say, well, you're, you're reformed. You believe in predestination. And so I haven't been given the grace to repent. It's not my responsibility. It's your nasty God that did that to me. And do you notice that right here, 
go back up. Right here, right before, he says, those to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then, immediately after he says that, flip it next. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, right there where he says that you can't come unless my father draws you, he then says, come. There's no conflict between the two. Absolutely not. And so you say, well, how can I come unless he draws me? And I say, did you hear his command? And you say, well, yeah, but how can I come unless the Father draws me? I say, did you hear his command? You say, yes, but how can I come if he doesn't help me come? I say, did you hear the command? And right there's the division. Some of you will blame him as you refuse to come. He has given a free offer to you to come. And you have the audacity to blame him for your not coming. I mean, it's just like awful, isn't it? He says, come! He says, come! You can't blame him. And if you don't come, you will be consumed. And that's it. Phoenix, it's over. That's, that's it. It's over. Do you understand that? So if you're a body that's drowning in the water and you have your arms at the side and you can't cry out and you can't wave, right? And in plain sight of everybody, you're headed to hell. And he says, come. And you're bouncing underneath the waves. If you come, he will give you rest. And you say, "Uh uh-uh. You don't know my bondage. I say, He says, come, you're going to blame him for your not coming. He says, he'll give you rest. You're going to deny that he's telling you the truth. Do you know what that is? That's no faith. If I were to tell you that I would give you $1,000 if you came back to evening worship tonight, many of you who will not come to him would come back, and I'd laugh at you because I don't have $1,000 to give you. In other words, you'll believe that you can buy a lottery ticket and... I mean, it's absurd the things you do, but you will not believe God himself when he says that he will give you rest. You will not believe him. You'll watch television. You know, you'll you'll use a certain kind of toothpaste. It's absurd. No, your husband will not find you more attractive if you dye your hair. Go ahead, try. You know, that woman on your computer is not going to become your wife. Go ahead, try. Unbelievable bondages you submit to and you believe in, but when Jesus, who is the Son of God, says, come, you won't come. And you'll blame him and you'll deny that he will give you rest. And he says, I will give you rest. He says not only he'll give us rest, but he says he's meek and gentle and humble of heart. I mean... In other words, even his character is completely enticing. 
<laughs> you know? Ever seen your wife when she's not enticing? You know? Oh, yes, you have. <laughs> I hate to disagree with a guest, but oh, yes, you have. When your wife is angry at something you've done to her, she is not enticing. She is hard as flint. And you can tell it by that little turn of the back or that little voice, you know? You know when you're in the doghouse, right? That's all I mean. I'm just talking about the doghouse. But Jesus has an infinite number of sins that you have committed against him and his father. And they have started when you were conceived, and they will go to the point of your natural death. Jesus has an endless list of offenses that you have done against him. And he says that if you come to him, you will find him merciful gentle, humble of heart. In other words, Jesus doesn't gunny sack. Jesus is ready to give you rest. You know, if you think about the fact that Jesus said here, that those who come to him come because the Father draws them. And you think to yourself, can I possibly believe that Jesus will receive me and my sin? Can I possibly go to him? I am such a piece of work. I'm such a piece of work. There's so much sin in my life. Can I possibly come to him? And then you think that he says that those who come to him, come to him because God has chosen to reveal himself to the poor and the stupid, the ignorant, to the people of no, people like the Israelites, the Jews, who were nothing. And that's why God chose them. That's what the Old Testament tells us. And you think about this and you think, well, how do I know if God will receive me? And I say, well, because he says, come. And you say, yeah, but what if I'm not one of the chosen? Here, here's, some of you are probably tormented by that. You have this little game you play like the clover, you know, the daisies. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And you try to f see which one comes out. You know what I'm saying? I guess you have to be OCD like me to do this kind of thing. But, so you play this game with God. He loves me, he loves me not. I'm called, I'm chosen, I'm not chosen, I'm not called. And let, let me just ask you the question. If you don't know whether or not God has chosen you, has it ever occurred to you that you just come anyhow? I mean, th think about it. If he hasn't chosen you, but he says, come, come. Say to him, God, I know you haven't chosen me, but I be coming. I mean, do you understand this? If you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed... All you have in you is this tiny, tiny little thing like, I don't care. I'm not going to go to Satan. I'm going to go to God. And if God curses me, I'll go to him anyhow because I love him. And then God says, ah, 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 ah. I didn't predestine you. What kind of a monster do you think God is that he makes a promise to you to come and that he will give you rest? You know, I think about these things about myself. 
I think about this. And you know what I think? Here's, here's the way I've resolved it. I think, am I chosen? And then I think to myself, I don't care. I would rather spend eternity rejected by God than one moment embracing Satan. <laughs> In other words, I'd rather live my life under God's judgment coming to him than um, the tiniest unit of time possible turning my back on the only hope I have for eternity. You know, why would I ever go over there? I don't want Satan. I don't want hell. I don't want sin. And so if God rejects me, he's going to be rejecting me with me coming. You know, I'm going to come. That's faith. That's faith. It doesn't look glamorous. It doesn't look clean. It's not Dutch. It's just, I will not allow him to turn away from me. I'll be facing him. And if he shoves me to hell, he'll shove me to hell with me saying, I love him. Does this make sense to you? This whole thing about predestination is to God's glory, but it's not to your depression and discouragement and hopelessness. If you hear him saying, come, you face him and you go. And yes, you're going to make a total horse's petition of yourself. That's the nature of the Christian faith. As you come, you'll fall on your face and you'll kick other people in the shins and you'll, you'll hurt your children and you'll hurt your wife and you go, you go because what? He said, come. And so you go. I've told you this before and I'll end. When I was with my mother up at Mayo, God had been merciful and told me that my father was going to die in that surgery. Sometimes God will tell you things like this. And so they told us he was off the bypass machine and my mother was hopeful and I was with her and Mary Lee had taken Michael to do something back at the room so Mary Lee and Michael weren't there. And, uh, I, you know, they said you're going to be able to come in and see him, you know, and you just have this surreal thing where you know it's not going to work. <laughs> He's going to die because God told that to you. And sure enough, after about half an hour of us anticipating going in to see him, they come to us and they say, something's gone horribly wrong. Your father has, has gone into uh, cardiac arrest. They've opened him back up in the recovery room. They're t- desperately trying to bring him back. And he, he, come on over. So they took us over to the room. And then I've told you this chaplain, this godless, godless, wicked man named a chaplain came in the room and began to tell me that I had every right to be angry at God. Now, mind you, there wasn't the slightest indication in me that I was angry at God, not the slightest. So he was just talking about himself. He wasn't helping me. And my mother's wailing and my father's dying. And there was a commercial, Michael Fox did, some of you will remember it, where he was did a public service commercial against drugs. He walks through a bunch of doors, and as he walks through the doors, they slam behind him. If you do drugs, slam door. Then your life will be slam door. Steadily growing more imprisoned, slam door, until all of a sudden he's right in front of you, 
and the last door has slammed and there's no place left to go because you've done drugs and your life is over. And that's the point of the commercial. And I remember thinking to myself, this is me right now. There's all these doors in front of me. And to the right, it was kind of a compression of different images, but to the right is love of God, to the left is hatred of God. And this is a life-defining moment for me because I really love my dad. So I'm sitting there and my mother's crying. My wife isn't there. And this damn chaplain is seducing me to turn from God. And I looked in my heart, and what I realized was that I couldn't conceive, no matter the pain, no matter the disappointment, that I could not conceive of ever not coming to God. It was very clear to me at that moment, he was the one giving me this pain. He was the one giving my mother her pain. There was no fate. It was a personal thing. This was God that gave me that moment, that gave me death, that was taking my father from me. There was no question in my mind. And the question was, would I love him as he disciplined me? And you say, oh, don't say discipline. All right, punished. Is that better? God was taking my father from me. He knew my love, and he took him. He knew my mother's love. He took him. And the question was, would I give in to this horrible, wicked, religious man and be angry at God, or would I say, though he slay me, I will serve him. I don't want to, com- I don't want to compare myself to Job at all. But you understand what I'm saying. And th- at that moment, what I realized in my heart was, that I would rather have my wife taken, my children taken, my father taken, my mother taken. I would rather starve to death, okay? I would rather lose everything that I care about in life and love God than be given one of them back and turn from the one who says, I will give you rest. Do you understand that? When he says he'll give you rest, he'll give you rest. You don't have to figure your life out. You don't have to work it in such a way that you have a husband who's better than your father. You come. And then everything that comes to your life is his rest. If he convicts you of sin, guess what? Conviction of sin is rest. You go, oh, no, no, that's a bottomless pit. I've, I've rejected that. I won't do that anymore. I say, okay, you won't have rest. Your entire life will be spent trying to avoid the bottomless pit. <laughs> I mean, does that look like a prison? I won't look at the pit. <laughs> he says what? Come on, you should have it in your brain by now. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. He'll give you rest. He'll give you rest. 
And I could look at every single one of you. I know your sins. Do you know what the calling of a pastor is? I'm supposed to help the Holy Spirit. So you know what this means? I go to you, to you, to you, to you, to you, and I convict you of sin. That's my purpose. I'm to convict you of sin so that you will go to him and get rest. Okay? And I look at you and I say, you, 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 you. Come to him. He'll give you rest. promise you. I promise you. I promise you. And listen, don't worry about bringing your sin to me and the elders and pastors and our wives. Bring it. Because then we get to show you the rest, the rest that God has for you. We already know you're a sinner. You're not hiding it from anyone. (laughs) I mean, really, you guys are hopeless. You think you're so sophisticated in your Hiding your sin. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's just like, everybody else sees it. Trust me. So, so don't hide it and don't try to escape it and don't medicate it with religion or drugs or pornography. Come. And he says he'll give you rest. Our Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to hide this from the rich and the influential. And the wise. And that you have revealed it to me, a fool. And so, Father, I I pray that today, as I made a fool of myself, that this stupidity will become salvation to the souls here who are timid and yet who will come. Father, send your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, that we will forget what lies behind and press on, that we will come and that we will find rest. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We adore you. You are our hope. Thank you for meeting us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.